It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 45, The Surrender of Slice. Welcome back to History of the Netherlands. In the previous episode, we discussed the desperate last gasp revolt of the town of Bruges in late 1490, when it briefly rejoined Philip of Cleves in his conflict with the Habsburg Ducal government before once again capitulating to Engelbert of Nassau in December of 1490. Like we said in that episode, we are trying our best to stick to just one Flemish revolt per episode, so we left Flanders at that point and moved our attention north to Holland to talk about the revolt of the bread and cheese folk in 1491-92. to Well, today, we are going to go back to Flanders during that same period, 1491-92, to to look at how the most famously fractious of Flemish cities, Ghent, also flared into open rebellion against Habsburg rule and rejoined the fight alongside Philip of Cleves. Although Philip's war against the ducal regime would ultimately come to an end in October 1492, This last period of the conflict is made extra complicated, not only because of the interpersonal relationship between Philip and Maximilian, nor because of the ongoing conflict between the powerful cities and the ducal court, not to mention the economic woes brought on by decades of warfare, trade disruptions, and the mass exodus of citizenry from probably the most important trading centre of the Low Countries, Bruges, but also because of a succession struggle which was contemporaneously being waged between Maximilian and Charles VIII of France, and it was taking place in the Duchy of Brittany. And since this distant dynastic dance would have all sorts of repercussions for the more local goings-on in the Low Countries, it makes sense to get it out of the way. So, first, to Brittany. Tally-ho! About two weeks after the formal capitulation of Bruges to the Habsburgs in December 1490, Maximilian put into action a plan that he had to really mess with the French king's head by marrying Anne of Brittany, the heiress, to the prominent and strategically important duchy on the west flank of the French kingdom. We touched upon the situation in Brittany in episode 42. 
Philip Cleves, and Maximilian Leaves. After being defeated by French forces in July 1488, the then Duke of Brittany, Francis II, who had no male heirs, had agreed that his daughters would only be married, with the explicit permission of the French king, Charles VIII. When Francis died in September of that year, his eldest daughter, Anne, was left unprotected from the rapacious overtures of Charles VIII himself. France quickly declared war on Brittany again, which led to an alliance being formed between Maximilian, Henry VII of England, and Ferdinand of Aragon to protect Brittany. At the Peace of Frankfurt in July 1489, the precursor to Montil de Tours, they had agreed that the question of what would happen in Brittany should be decided by a papal court of arbitration. In October 1490, a truce between France and Brittany was brought into effect, which would last until May 1491. During the interim period of this truce, Maximilian must have looked over at Brittany and seen it as yet another opportunity for him to waltz into a proud and powerful duchy in the midst of a succession crisis and once again play the part of the heroic white knight in shining armor, just as he had for Mary of Burgundy in 1477. So, on December 19th, 1490, he did just that. Well, kind of. An entourage of representatives was sent by Maximilian to the city of Rennes, where Anne was holed up, and Maximilian became married to the 14-year-old Anne by proxy. This surprised everyone, most especially Charles VIII, who only found out about it after the fact. This is not the first time we've seen a proxy marriage. Maximilian had first married Mary of Burgundy by proxy, so too had Philip the Good to Isabella of Portugal. The problem with getting married by proxy, however, is that until the marriage ceremony is repeated later in person, it is pretty easy to claim that the proxy marriage isn't actually real. As historian D.L. Davray wrote of this in their wonderful book, Dissolving Royal Marriages, A Documentary History, 860-1600, quote, If the ceremony was so definitive, why repeat it? Despite long-established conceptual clarity on the canon law side, it looks as if there was still something of a no-man's land between betrothal and definitive marriage. End quote. To help give the whole thing a veneer of formality, there were a bunch of rituals which took place in proxy marriages. Devray writes further of it, quote, Maximilian did not go to Brittany in person. He sent proxies empowered to contract the marriage for him. One of them, famously touched Anne with his naked knee in a marriage bed in front of the whole court, end quote. That's weird. I wonder how that actually worked. I hereby place my knee on you. Your marriage to my lord has now been consummated. Humans are strange. The person who acted in proxy might have been relieved that he was just the proxy standing in for Maximilian because Anne was apparently rather ugly and suffered from a hip problem, meaning that she walked with a higher heel in one of her shoes to try and mask a natural limp. In fact, historian Jane DeLong said of Maximilian's absence in this whole event, quote, He did not know her sad, distressingly ugly little face, her pathetic little figure, which, shy and slightly lame, one would have expected to meet in the sculleries of the ducal palace, rather than on the ducal throne itself, end quote. Oof, 
harsh. But be that as it may, that distressingly ugly little face had just married a king. So cop that, body shamers. After this, she began signing her letters as Anne, Queen of the Romans. Although it was bold, this plan was never going to work out for Maximilian or his allies. In fact, when the French court found out about this marriage, they were most upset indeed, especially because it explicitly went against the agreement that they had made with Francis II of Brittany that his daughters could only marry with the French king's permission. As soon as the truce between France and Brittany expired in May 1491, Charles VIII marched an army back into Brittany and quickly took over all of the major cities, except for Rennes, where Anne was protected by an army of about 14,000 English, German, and Spanish troops. Anne at this point must have imagined that her new husband would soon come rushing to her aid, especially considering she rejected a proposal from Henry VII to help escort her out of the town and into the Netherlands. But alas, Maximilian was far away in his Austrian lands, dealing with a bunch of hungry, hungry Hungarians, whose conquering king Matthias Corvinus had himself just recently died, providing the Habsburgs with the opportunity to reassert themselves in Central Europe. Rennes was put to siege by the French king, and after months of deprivation in the city and essentially sending herself bankrupt in her attempts to prevail, Anne was left with no choice but to surrender Rennes to the French on October 13th, 1491. Now, Charles had to figure out what to do with the young Duchess of Brittany. He offered to send her to Maximilian, her husband, but despite being wed to him through the power of proxy knee touch, she wasn't interested in the man who had decided to stay thousands of miles away from her while she was being besieged by one of his most powerful enemies. Charles sought suitable marriage prospects for her which would keep Brittany under his thrall, but Anne refused to marry anybody who is not a king or the son of a king. Why should she downgrade? Well, Charles VIII was himself a king, and even though he was already betrothed to Margaret, Maximilian's daughter, he soon saw that the neatest way to get what he wanted was to regretfully cast Margaret aside and wed the Duchess of Brittany on December 6, 1491. But, we hear you cry, what about Margaret? Well, Dear listeners, young Margaret's world came crashing down with this unexpected turn of events. She had been in France since infancy and was partly raised by the king's own sister, Anne of Beaujeu. Margaret was well entrenched within the socio-political network in which she was due to play a major part in the future. Her governess, Madame de Segre, is said to have treated her as a mother would. De Long, in her 1950s biography of Margaret, supposed that, quote, in later years, when she herself was charged with the upbringing of four motherless children, Margaret was often to remember this warm-hearted, understanding woman who had given her such a happy youth. End quote. And yes, indeed, that is some serious foreshadowing. But now, at the age of 11, Margaret found herself dumped, heartbroken, and bereft of the future that she had been brought up to expect on the outer in France, and wondering what would become of her. Charles told her that he would send her back to her father, Maximilian, who was a stranger to her, but that would still take quite a long time to happen. This whole kerfuffle in Brittany would have all sorts of implications in Flanders, because those who were still disaffected with Maximilian and the ducal government, namely Philip of Cleves and the rebellious faction in the city of Ghent, 
found a very large and willing ally in the form of France now in their corner. Charles VIII began funneling money, troops, and emotional support towards Philip of Cleves and the rebels in Flanders. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it is France versus Germany in the Low Countries for the umpteenth time, and we've only just gotten into the 1490s. Ghent had already begun stirring against the Habsburg Ducal government in March 1491. The revolt that is about to unfold there is going to look a hell of a lot like the one that we saw in Bruges in the previous episode, which, remember, Ghent chose not to join at that time because they couldn't really decide whether they disliked Maximilian or Bruges more. If these two cities had worked together at this point, rather than constantly sit at odds with one another, perhaps they could have shared the spoils of success instead of dividing the detritus and debris of defeat. But whatever, we're not here to judge with 500 years of hindsight. So as we were saying, in the middle of March 1491, Engelbert of Nassau told Ghent, just as he had done to Bruges, to introduce those mean and malignant monetary reforms. Remember that these reforms were enforced in the context of insane food prices. Compared to 1470, the price of rye in Ghent had tripled by 1488 and was five times higher by 1491. The city of Ghent refused to bring in the changes to the currency and in so doing found themselves once again in direct conflict with the ducal regime. You can imagine that the towns in the vicinity of Ghent could, by now, recognize a revolt when it was in the making. In April, nearby Beerfleet demonstrated such awareness by requesting more troops and resources from the ducal government in the case that this most powerful city in northern Europe, once again, erupted into violence. The ripples from this conflict in Flanders had spread across the North Sea and beyond. Maximilian made a demand that all foreign merchants within his lands would have to pay a contribution for the upcoming war against Philip in Slaus, and now also in Ghent. This led the Hanseatic League to consider blocking all Hollandic ships from being able to load grain from the Baltic lands at Reval, better known as Tallinn, the capital city of Estonia today. Toll records in the Danish Sound show that at this time, more than half of all the ships making the journey from the North Sea into the Baltics through this passage were from Holland. This blockade would have had a devastating effect on a region which was already suffering under massively inflated food prices and shortages. We spoke in more detail about the importance of the trade from this region all the way back in episode 16, the fishy tale of Willem Bokelzoom. Well, that just made me realize it has taken us 25-odd episodes to get through the 1400s. We are going to have to speed this up if we are to get through the history of the Netherlands in the 50 episodes we originally planned. So, let's speed up. At this point, a whole lot of diplomatic wranglings started. In April, there were peace negotiations between Philip and the ducal government, which failed. After this, Philip of Bifida, the ducally appointed Admiral of the Low Countries, decided to lay a really heavy chain over the harbour of Vida to stop any piratical attacks from Slaus. In May, Philip's father, Adolf of Cleves, and his wife personally went to Slaus to negotiate as well on behalf of Maximilian and Philip the Fair. These negotiations also failed. Philip of Cleves, seeking to shore up his alliances, then sent his personal secretary, a guy called Olivier de Kessler, to meet with the Marshal of France, 
Philip the Clever Cur, who was by now in his 73rd year of life, which would have been absolutely ancient by contemporary standards. A quick Google search suggests that at this time period, the average lifespan for an English male was 48.8 years. We assume that English males were roughly equivalent to French males at the time, though one might have had a greater propensity for baked beans. But today's average life expectancy for men in France is 79.2 years. And the point of that is to suggest that people might have reacted to crevacure the way that you might react to seeing a 120-year-old bloke dressed up in his formal wear and ruling a world power. Think Joe Biden or the Queen of England, but much, much older. Anyway, upon return, Philip's secretary passed on word that Crevacour wanted everybody, meaning Philip of Cleves, Maximilian, Charles VIII, etc., to figure out this mess and meet in either Tournai or Arras. But, and you won't believe this, this plan also went nowhere. After this, representatives from Mechelen were again sent to Philip to try and reach peace between him and the ducal regime, but with his French money, he was really in no rush to cease his stubbornness. He refused to take part in any negotiations without the French king's presence. In this, you can clearly see the constant rhythm of failed mediation that we described in the previous episode. Around the same time, representatives from the Hanseatic League and the King of England, Henry VII, met in Antwerp. They were also trying to locate the long elusive laxative that might counter the crippling commercial constipation that resulted from Philip's intractable recalcitrance in Slaus. Things really began to heat up in June 1491, when Ghent exploded into its own bizarre orgy of violence. Like we said earlier, this revolt was highly reminiscent of the one in Bruges the previous year, because it was mainly led by the starving lower classes who supported Philip of Cleves, as opposed to the rich nobles who just wanted peace. It was also strangely reminiscent of another outburst of fury in Ghent that we talked about in episode 30, a rebuke of the new duke. That was a revolt that happened in 1467 during the ill-timed joyous entry of Charles the Bold into Ghent because it took place at the same time of year during the exact same civic celebration. In June, the people of Ghent partook in one of their most notorious time-honored traditions, the procession of the St. Liefen's Zoltan, which literally translates as the St. Liefen's Crazies. This was a perennial parade of plastered pilgrims who drunkenly carried the relics of St. Liefen from Ghent to Haltem and back over two days. The symbol these pilgrims wore was a sheep herder's staff. On this occasion, in 1491, during the march through Ghent, a bunch of them began to loudly and aggressively bleat like sheep. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> yeah, it's aggressive and loud. Would have been very uncomfortable. And they exclaimed that the nobility needed to better look after their flock. Bah. At the same time, about 300 of Philip of Cleves' troops, who were hidden within the crowd of pilgrims, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, so to speak, they said, hold my beer drew their swords, and even more loudly and more aggressively, began to chop Kent's urban elite to bits, rather unsheepishly shouting, Long live Ravenstein! Through this sudden eruption of violence, the radical leader Jan van Koppenhol was once again thrust into power in Ghent 
alongside his twin brother, Franz. Open warfare once again broke out in Flanders after this. The armies of Ghent went plundering through the countryside, while Philip of Cleves captured the town of Holst and burnt it to the ground. There was also an unsuccessful attempt to capture Bruges, which was repulsed. This was around the same time that the states of Holland sent a message from up north to the ducal government in Mechelen that a peace with Philip of Cleves should be achieved ASAP because they had an issue with bread and cheese folk, which we talked about last episode. Much like the most recent uprising in Bruges, this one in Ghent was more the death throes of a starving populace rather than a well-orchestrated and coordinated political coup. By August, people within the walls were over it and already grumbling for peace. Kopenhauer was forced to briefly flee from Ghent to Slaus in October 1491, but he returned when he found out that in his absence, the peace party had already started making preparations to send ambassadors to Mechelen, with the aim of allowing Ghent to come to terms with the ducal court. There were negotiations between all possible combinations of parties, all of which, surprise surprise, failed. Meanwhile, devastation continued to be wrought across Flanders and the countryside became, as Ari Defau described it, quote, a wasteland, end quote. In December 1491, Maximilian signed a treaty with Denmark and Holstein in which they explicitly agreed with each other that no ship which wanted to take part in trade with Flanders was allowed to go to Slaus. In agreements like this, we can see how the consequences of Philip of Cleves' stubbornness were becoming greater and greater, as powers in the wider region began to cooperate with one another and manoeuvre against him. The pirate rebel in his castle in Slaus was now facing the prospect of not just having to hold out against Maximilian, but also against much of the rest of the North Sea region as well. But with France at his side, Philip of Cleves was still feeling untouchable. In October of 1491, Charles VIII, acting in his role as the official sovereign of Flanders, declared that Philip of Cleves was now the governor and lieutenant general of that province. Philip sent his wife off to go and meet with the French and get as much help as possible. During yet more peace negotiations around Christmas 1491, the ducal side really got into the Christmas spirit basically gave up on all of their demands, meaning that Philip of Cleves could stay in Slaus until Philip of Fair came of age and they would support him financially. But Philip, playing the Grinch, decided that this was the time to up his demands and refuse to do anything until he was publicly declared innocent in front of the States General and until it be made clear that it was not he who had betrayed his prince, but his prince who had betrayed him. We can't help but think that two years of self-imposed isolation within Slaus must have really brought out the angsty emo teenager in Philip. He wasn't into anything, especially Christmas. Be that as it may, in January 1492, a meeting of the States General was called to sort this whole business out. It was to be held in Mechelen in February, although it wouldn't really get going until March due to a complex suite of hostage swaps which had to take place before anybody could really trust each other enough to go forth into, let's face it, another likely set of failed negotiations. Once again, the ducal side acquiesced to a bunch of Philip's requests, including that Maximilian, Albert of Saxony, and the States General would consider the imperial ban against Philip of Cleves to be lifted, 
unless the emperor explicitly said otherwise within the next three months. Philip, though, if you hadn't gathered by now, was a pretty infuriating individual. His wife had just come back from France with extra troops and a bunch of cash, so he responded by making even more demands. From Ari Defau, quote, As for his officers and ministries, Philip wished to be reinstated as governor of Flanders and Hanau with all their strengths, as governor of the city and castle of Namur, as secular guardian of Liège, and as commander of Huy, as admiral. Philip also did not forget his helpers. He even asked for a fair burial for the unburied dead. He expressly demanded that the Russengum case, i.e. the murder that he had orchestrated, not be discussed. The troops of both sides would leave Flanders. The debts incurred by Philip of Cleves and his party members had to be paid by the opposing party. Philip even claimed his artillery, which was located in Brussels. Besides that, Maximilian paid Philip what the latter still had to demand from the king. Philip asked for 40,000 guilders as compensation for the expenses incurred by him at Slaus. Finally, Philip stood up for the interests of his privateers and of the city of Slaus, depopulated and partly destroyed. End quote. You might not be surprised to find that the opposing side did not find this reasonable. And yes, these negotiations... Everybody all together now. Failed. Yes, they failed. At this point, the negotiating parties broke up and the avenue of diplomacy had pretty much run its course as far as the issue of Slaus was concerned. In February, the French had released Charles of Egmont, the true heir to the Duchy of Gelders, from the captivity they had kept him in since the Battle of Bethune in 1487, after the cities of that duchy disaffected by Maximilian's rule, decided they would get him out and paid a big ransom for him. So now there was another loose cannon in the north of the Low Countries. Wary of this new threat to Maximilian's grasp on centralized power, the ducal government realized that they needed to end this business in Flanders once and for all, and the States General met one last time at the end of March 1492 to agree that war against Slaus, its privateers, and Ghent was now the number one priority. It truly was now Philip of Cleves and Ghent, but not for much longer, against everybody else. Slaus was about to be put to siege, which meant that for whoever was left in there, they were in for a terrible experience. Speaking of terrible experiences, it's time for an ad break. See you on the other side. Welcome to Welcome back. Okay, so the plan for this part of the episode is to vigorously push this whole Philip of Cleves rebellion story through to its ending, so no time to waste. After the States General agreed in March 1492 that war against Slaus and Ghent was the only option left, things began to heat up. First of all, let's talk about what happened in Ghent. Like we said at the beginning, the pattern that this revolt followed was awfully similar to the one we looked at in Bruges in the previous episode. The city was suffering from the same generally dismal conditions that the rest of Flanders had been, plus it had now spent about a year locked in confrontation with the ducal regime, meaning that it was running perilously low on food and supplies. During the night of March 28th, a group of about 150 Gentenars under the command of Jan van Koppenhol snuck out of Ghent and headed south to the town of Herardsbergen. 
There, they went a-plundering, setting several houses on fire, capturing the captain of the town, and stealing whatever they could get their hands on. As they were transporting these captured supplies back to Ghent, however, they were surprised by a bunch of soldiers from Hanau, who attacked them from behind and killed and or captured a whole lot of them, as well as all that important loot. So things continued badly for Ghent. In April 1492, just before Easter, an attempt was made to transport more supplies from Slaus to Ghent. You'll remember that Slaus, what with its pirating and pillaging, was absolutely overloaded with food and materials, but was unable to use these to help its allies due to the hostile armies which blockaded the land around it. According to the excellent Chronicle of Flanders, an army of about five or 6,000 people left Kent to Slaus to try and gather supplies. But, as this transport mission was returning, they were ambushed by armies from Bruges and Dummer, and about 100 ships which were loaded with grain and other materials were captured and sent back to Dummer. The Gentinars were able to return with a few wagons of supplies, but nothing else. It must have been a demoralizing effort. And so divisions began to emerge inside Ghent between those who wanted peace and those who wanted to continue the struggle against Maximilian. Those divisions continued to grow even wider during these desperate last months. There were several failed attempts from within to open the city's gates to Albert of Saxony and his armies. On June 14th, a group of about 150 men led by Arend de Klerk set out from Ghent to try to capture the town of Danza, but were unable to do so due to their small size. When they returned to Ghent, a confrontation erupted between Arend de Klerk and Jan van Koppenhol in front of the Schepenhaus, with de Klerk blaming Koppenhol for the failed capture of Danza. According to de Klerk, Koppenhol had promised to send troops, but he never actually did it. This confrontation got so heated that a fight broke out, and during the clash, the Captain General of Ghent, a shoemaker by the name of Hubert, was murdered by the Dean of the Shippers Guild. De Klerk's troops apparently would also have cut Coppenhole down on the spot if not for de Klerk's intervention. Instead, Coppenhole and his followers were arrested and chucked into jail, and the peace faction took power again. So Jan van Coppenhole lived to see another day. But only the one, because on the 16th of June 1492, this new government of Ghent hastily tried Jan van Koppenhol and his brother Franz on the charges of having unlawfully killed a lot of different people during their various reigns of terror. This was pretty undeniable. Remember we talked about the Koppenholes back in episode 40, The Rhyme and Unreason of Treason, when they had been heavily involved in the first revolt against Maximilian back in 1483. Jan had driven a decade of devilish and disruptive dissatisfaction directed at the Duke within Ghent and Flanders as a whole. He had even been so bold as to have his own head stamped onto the back of those subversive coins that Ghent had decided to mint in opposition to Maximilian and Philip. Well, now was the time for that same head to be emancipated from its body, which happened on the Freidachs marked where so many before him had experienced the same or similar fates. Twins until the end, his brother also lost his head. So with Ghent's rebellious leaders now headless and the peace party well and truly back in power, 
the time was nigh for Ghent to come to terms with Albert of Saxony and the ducal government. They immediately entered into peace negotiations, which culminated in the signing of the Peace of Kudzand on July 29, 1492. This peace was a humiliation for Ghent and was basically a reversion of Ghent's relationship with the ducal government all the way back to what it had been in the aftermath of their failed revolt of 1453. Then, the Peace of Gavara had been imposed on the great city, which we spoke about way back in episode 26, beautiful Burgundian bureaucracy and the salty citizens of Ghent. In case you don't remember that far back, following that revolt, Philip the Good had deprived Ghent of everything except for its existence, which he had also heavily considered and been advised to take away. This new peace of Kudzand saw Ghent forced to recognize Maximilian as the regent in Flanders for his son Philip. They had to give up their city militia, they had to give up the right to appoint their own aldermen and sheriffs, and to let go of the stranglehold that the city held on the countryside around and outside the town. Since the signing of the Great Privilege in 1477, Ghent had managed to regain much of the autonomy and power which had been such a strong part of its identity for so long. With the Peace of Kudzand, however, Ghent would have to start again, and the city would remain subdued in its relationship with the Habsburgs for about 40 years. Much like with other pieces signed at this time, there was a whole ritual which went along with it. A group of 100 citizens were sent to the town of Holst, where they were forced to kneel, bareheaded at the feet of Albert of Saxony, and beg his forgiveness. Yellow Hummers suggests that while the terms of this peace agreement were harsh towards the civic autonomy of Ghent, they were not nearly as severe as they could have been towards the individuals responsible for all the misery of the last few years. To quote Hummers, quote, a serious intervention in the Ghent area would probably have strengthened the resistance of Philip of Cleves. It is striking that there was no harsh repression, for example, the execution of insurgent leaders, or that no one was personally punished in the peace of Kazan. A certain leniency was part of the political tactic in 1492 to get Flanders under control. End quote. And this leniency was probably necessary because re-establishing control of Ghent was a cakewalk compared to the challenge presented by Philip of Cleves in Slacks. Naturally, after the fall of Ghent, the entire focus of the ducal military operation now fell on figuring out how exactly they were going to remove Philip of Cleves from his almost impenetrable position in the town of Slacks. The first step towards doing this were undertaken by Philip von Biefre, the ducally appointed admiral of the Low Countries. At the beginning of June, he took about a hundred ships, many of which had English mercenaries on board, and sailed them to the Zvin to begin blockading Slavs from the sea. There were four huge warships in this group, and great preparations were made to attack Slavs. All the craftsmen of Bruges were sent to St. Anne to Mauda to go and dig trenches and build fortifications for the upcoming siege. When a group of English ships arrived at the beginning of July, the people inside Slavs mistakenly believed that they were French ships who were coming to help them and lit large bonfires hailing their arrival. They must have been dismayed when they opened fire as soon as they were in range, with the excellent Chronicle of Flanders saying that the shots on the first night, quote, were very terrible on the castles and city of Slaus, end quote. Albert of Saxony scored another victory when he was able to subdue Zurich Zee in Zeeland, 
on July 10th, 1492. Zurich Zay had been supporting Slaus in its plundering of the North Sea. According to historian Ari Defau, at Zurich Zay, Albert of Saxony was awarded with a golden rose and a sword from the Pope, with which he was named as the, quote, right hand of the empire, end quote. That must have been a blessed feeling indeed. The feeling was probably less blessed for all the regular people who lived within this war-torn region. In the chronicle of Rombo de Dopera, a priest from Bruges who wrote contemporaneously about the period of 1482 to 92, he writes that at this time, quote, a pestilence and disease raged with which men seemed so insane that it was necessary to be guarded and tied with cords by which disease many were perished, end quote. So if the war didn't get you, perhaps the plague would. Right. With the subjugation of Zurich Zay, basically all of the major ports of Zeeland and Flanders were now under the control of the ducal government, and they could begin to further challenge the dominance which Philip of Cleves had enjoyed over the seas from Slice. To do this, Albert of Saxony sent a bloke we met in the last episode, Wilvolt von Schaumburg, who had been influential in the crushing of the cheese and bread folk in Holland to go and begin the attack on Slice. Wilvolt von Schaumburg first went to the town of Flissinger, where he combined his forces with those of Philip of Beefenden. This armada sailed through the other main connection Slice had to the sea, a treacherous gap known as the Zwartergut, the Black Hole. From here, they occupied the island of Kudzand, which due to the devastation of the war, the blockades and the plague, by the way, had a grand total of 12 people left living on it. The occupation put a huge amount of pressure on Philip of Cleves. Kudzand lay just to the north of Slaus, and for ships to get from Slaus to the sea, they either needed to head west via the Zvin, which was already blockaded, or northeast through the Zwarte Gut. With Kudzon occupied, it would be possible for the ducal forces to completely cut Slice off by building blockhouses along the Zvin and the Zwarte Gut. From these blockhouses, they would be able to destroy any marauding pirate ships. In so doing, they would flip the script on everything which had been transpiring for the last few years. Philip of Cleves knew how important it was for Kudzan to remain in his hands, so he immediately led an invasion force of 2,000 men and a bunch of artillery from Slaus towards Kudzan. But Wilvold von Schaumburg was a tricky customer himself. He had anticipated this move and was waiting with his ships for Philip to make it. As soon as he did, Wilvold ordered his own ships to sail from Kudzan to Slaus, upon which Philip realized he'd better quickly do the same, or risk getting cut off from the safety he enjoyed within the walls and castles of the city. In the middle of July, the international coalition which had formed against Philip of Cleves began to bite when the King of England, Henry VII, commanded that a group of 12 ships and 2,500 men under the command of Sir Edward Poynings join the siege at Slouse. They arrived around the beginning of August, which time Poynings and Albert of Saxony met with one another to figure out exactly how they were going to crush Philip of Cleves within Slaus. The strategy they decided upon was for Albert of Saxony's armies to maintain the attack on one of the castles from the land side, while the English armies attacked the other from the seaside. This siege, to put it bluntly, was awful. Not just for those being put to siege, but those actually conducting it. Stuck in sand, outside Slaus, 
the English troops, they were completely at the mercy of the tides and often found themselves standing in knee-high water. Welcome to the low countries, fellas. When the tide was high, they were forced to cook their food on fires which had been raised above the water. The rising water also meant that their big guns couldn't shoot anymore. Must have been a truly miserable existence. Despite being on the same side as each other, there were often miscommunications between the English and the German troops, as well as insults being hurled between them, leading pointings to have to step in and break up fights which broke out and sometimes turned deadly. Yet the English persisted with the siege, despite, according to de Dopera, every single person in the army except for one, the tailor, suffering from disease. A last-ditch attempt was made by Philip de Crevecourt to persuade the English to leave, but all that piracy had done so much damage to English trade in the Low Countries that pulling out now was just not an option. Philip of Cleves himself was in no mood to surrender either. What a surprise! And he let as much be known in a letter to his father, Adolf of Cleves, the very old and very soon to be dead Lord of Ravenstein. Adolf must have despaired at seeing his son and heir in this position because according to de Dopera, he apparently burst into tears upon receiving this letter and swore on the golden fleece to disinherit his rebellious son. For 20 days the fighting at Slaus raged. In his Chronicle of England, Edward Hall writes that the English troops continually assaulted the castle as well as a boat bridge which connected the two castles across the water. In this fighting, at least 50 English troops died, including the Earl of Oxford's brother, George de Vere. By the middle of September, the military situation in Slough was beginning to look awful for Philip of Cleves, and particularly for the people inside the city who began clamouring for peace. But Philip's position was well and truly thrown into disarray when word arrived in Slough on the 20th of September that two days earlier, Adolf of Ravenstein had died in the castle of Suburg in Zeeland. The old man's passing, while not entirely unexpected, was still definitely unplanned, and it would provide the necessary cut to unravel the Gordian knot that this entire situation had long become. At the end of September, Engelbert of Nassau and another big shot, the Prince of Chimay, Chimay being just south of Brussels, rocked up in Slags for another round of negotiations full of hope that everything might just be different this time round. Eight days of talks followed, which doesn't seem like much considering the sheer levels of righteous obstinance that everybody had to get through on both sides. At last though, amazingly, they reached an accord. That's right, they didn't fail this time. Hooray! But why? Why this time? Well, Ludwig von Eib the Younger, the biographer of Wilwold von Schaumburg, made the case that two factors were responsible for the outrageous occurrence of these negotiations actually leading somewhere. The first major factor was the death of Adolf of Cleves. As we bid him adieu, it is worth remembering that Adolf had long been not only a major player in Flanders for decades, but that he had also been a key figure at the start of this series of revolts which began 10 years earlier and have taken us five episodes to get through. Adolf had, after all, been an original member of the rebellious Regency Council that had denied Maximilian's claim to rule in his infant son's stead. Adolf had been directly responsible for empowering the rebellious Monitan factions in Flanders, 
as well as for denying Maximilian from seeing his own son for three years. He had shrewdly realigned his loyalties to the ducal side right before the end of the First Revolt, but had since witnessed his own son realigning his own loyalties in the opposite direction before bunkering down for several years of outright refusal. Now, Adolf was dead, and for Philip of Cleves, this meant that his inheritance was on the line. His father's castles and lands were quickly occupied by ducal forces, with the government basically saying to Philip, you're not getting any of your stuff till you come out of Slaus. As on a bound as Philip had proven himself to be, he was still a highborn noble for whom family inheritance, reputation and legacy was paramount. So it was a no-brainer. But Von Eib also gives a second reason for why the talks succeeded this time, and the second is the extremely desperate situation into which Slaus had now descended. It would seem that the matter of his father's passing gave a legitimate reason for Philip to bring an end to the suffering within his pirate den city's walls. The siege had wrought devastation and hunger, and of late, quote, tons of women, end quote, had been engaging in public processions of proclamation, pleading for peace. As Ari DeFau put it, quote, Slaus could not take it anymore, and Philip, seeking the chance to remain a big man of the world, could not let it slip. Any further resistance would have been senseless, end quote. So it was that on the 9th of October, a bunch of nobles came together on a field just outside of Slaus, Philip of Cleves, Engelbert of Nassau, the Prince of Chimay, and the Lord of Beefenden were all there. On October 12th, 1492, it was announced that a peace treaty had been signed between Philip of Cleves and Albert of Saxony. The terms of the treaty were, once again, pretty bloody lenient. All things considered, Philip of Cleves, who hadn't really been outside of this city for a long time and by now was sporting an absolutely amazing beard, which we will put a picture of up on our website, appeared publicly on his knees before Albert of Saxony and swore allegiance to the ducal government. The imperial ban against Philip was lifted. Philip would receive all the incomes to which he was entitled for his earlier service to Maximilian and his inheritance through his father and his wife would not be infringed. Philip would hand over control and the keys to the larger castle at Slaus to the Duke of Saxony, who would then immediately return them to him. Weird. He was given money to make repairs to the damage which had been done to it and was allowed to keep the castle until Maximilian, or Philip the Fair when he came of age, personally came to relieve him of it. The smaller castle in Slaus, however, would be handed over immediately and irrevocably to the Duke of Saxony because, no matter what, they were never going to let both these castles fall into hostile hands again. Other conditions included that neither Philip nor the men who had carried out the attack to murder Adrian Verlaine, the Lord of Rassicum, would be prosecuted for it, though they would need to meet with the heirs of Verlaine to figure out what an appropriate penance would be. He would later agree with them to hold a mass every day for the soul of the slain man, as well as undertake a pilgrimage to Rome and complete the Santiago de Compostela. So there's a couple of his future summer vacations sorted. The pirates of Slaus would immediately cease their activities and all foreign ships, meaning those Danish ships which had been plundering the North Sea for Philip, would have to leave within two weeks. Still, despite how lenient this all seems, 
There were things in the treaty which rankled Philip of Cleves. Of course there were. It was Philip of Cleves. As Joey Sparkers writes in his great master's thesis on this topic, quote, Albert declares to have forgiven, quitted, remitted, abolished, and forgive, quit, remit, and abolish from a special grace all the crimes, excesses, and abuses that have been committed against Philip the Handsome, end quote. Philip of Cleves would forever remain obstinate that he had never done anything wrong in this entire affair, so there was nothing to forgive. He would maintain this stance for decades afterwards. But be that as it may, after half an hour, the ceremony was over and a new era of peace began. That night, a huge party was held within the larger castle of Slacks. It must have been strange for Philip to be hosting the people he had been struggling violently against for so long, not to mention that he had engaged in about a hundred previous negotiation attempts with all of those with whom he was now sharing a table. This is part of what makes it difficult to assess Philip of Cleves. On the one hand, he took a solemn oath to protect the peace of Bruges and went as far as he possibly could in upholding it. But on the other hand, throughout all of those previous negotiations, both sides had variously suggested almost exactly the same terms as the ones that they had finally settled upon. But the only real objective difference between those situations and this one, as these people ripped into their feast in the castle at Slaus, was that his dad had died and Philip wanted his stuff. All of that honour and chivalry which he had professed over the last few years might have just been a good way to cover over the fact that Philip of Cleves was a deeply selfish person. Perhaps this might have been part of the reason why Mary of Burgundy ever refused to marry him all those years ago. But that's all by the by and speculative. What we can say is that over the next few weeks, the two armies finally departed from Flanders and finally, finally, peace returned to the county. No, really, it did. We are not going to suddenly throw another random Flemish revolt at you. Flanders was spent and ready for peace. The peace they got was one born from exhaustion, though. It was a peace that only existed because it was all that remained after nearly two decades of war and revolt had destroyed everything else. The population had dwindled, with many towns and villages now deserted. Ari de Fau finishes this chapter of his biography on Philip of Cleves' life by pointing out the devastation across the region. Many now disused dikes and slouses had been cut open for military purposes or had decayed after a decade of disorder. He describes that there were so many wolves and wild boars running around, reveling in the post-apocalyptic landscape two years later, that the hunting master of Flanders was ordered to go on a six-month culling campaign so that the farmers could use the land again. That's insane to think about. It makes me very glad not to be a Flemish farmer trying to pick up the pieces in the aftermath of it all. Speaking of post-apocalyptic landscapes, well, ding, ding, ding. We bet you didn't know that it is time for bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Thought we'd forgotten. We would never do that. Except in episodes 42 and 17, where we have gaps on our list of things you didn't know were Dutch and maybe forgot. Anyway, have we used landscape before? I don't know. But landscape. It derives from the Dutch word landschap, a term that came to be used widely from the 17th century in regard to painting views of natural scenery, paintings of, you know, landscapes. 
The Netherlands has a grand total of one landscape. It's flat and green, but it's beautiful. Landscape. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. So now you might be thinking, with this Flemish revolt out of the way, surely life in the low countries was due to settle down for a bit and become a bit simpler. But you would be wrong, because with the release of Charles of Egmont, the Duke of Gelders, that province was about to take Flanders' place as the bastion of anti-Habsburg feelings within the Low Countries. There was also the question of what to do about the war with France, which had once again reared its head, and about the fact that Maximilian's daughter Margaret was still a guest of the French court, despite having been ignominiously dumped from her betrothal into it. Not to mention that Maximilian's dad, the Emperor Frederick III, was not long for this world, meaning that Maximilian would soon take his place as emperor, and Philip the Fair would soon be of age to rule in the Low Countries in his own right, marking a significant change in the ducal identity. But that is not the only change that is to come, because while we have been looking at how events in the Low Countries unfolded during the 15th century, other events abroad, undertaken by different people in different countries, calling themselves different things, we're going to have extremely far-reaching consequences. In fact, perhaps the farthest-reaching global consequences yet. From the 1420s, as Philip the Good was wresting control of Holland of his cousin Jacqueline of Bavaria, the Portuguese were ramping up their exploration of the West African coast, bringing them into contact with people and trade networks there that would soon become expanded to a global scale. In 1488, at the same time as Maximilian was being held captive at the Cronenberg House in Bruges, the Portuguese navigator, Bartolomeu Dias, was en route to successfully rounding the southern tip of Africa, kicking off the age of European access to Asia by sea. And, on the same day as the signing of the peace treaty between Philip of Cleves and Albert of Saxony, October 12, 1492, an Italian navigator sponsored by the King and Queen of Spain, called Christopher Columbus, first set foot on an island of the Bahamas, marking the beginning of the European exploration, invasion, and colonization of the Americas. The world was about to change extremely quickly, but good news. Our beloved little swamp is going to have an oversized impact on it all. But that's all for future episodes of History of the Netherlands. Until next time, doi. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. As usual, we want to thank our beautiful listeners for the loyalty of their eardrums, their chat through email and Twitter, and to everyone who has shared their love of the history of the Netherlands with others. Of course, none of it would be at all possible without the mighty collective power that is the great privilege of Patreon, wherein our listeners raise the taxes needed to keep waging this war against France. I mean, to keep making this podcast. Patreon is quite literally the way to keep this show coming out on a semi-regular, semi-late-ish fashion. So, if you haven't done it yet, do so, because those who have added their names to this illustrious document are forever honoured in our hearts, from which humble depths we do now thank you. And today, we are most honoured to have our first ever royal signatory. This is truly a most extraordinary occasion for the podcast. If this was a visual medium, you would notice that we have placed our most fancy gilded banners all around the room and lit a thousand torches in honour of His Majesty, 
King Frerit the Ninth of New Orleans. This bloke literally took a leaf out of Jan Coppenhol's book and has a coin with his own face on the back of it, which we found you can buy on eBay for $5.99. Wow, so many things to unpack there, and we're going to leave it all alone. Thank you, Frerit the Ninth. Glory to your house and to your name. Next up, we have someone a little less royal, but who is still a class above most other people because his name is Class, Class Barnes. He always thought his teachers in school were being mean to him personally when they said, sit down, Class. So thanks, sit down. Then we have Ilir Machi. We Machi appreciate you. Your name has an accent in it, which we're not exactly sure how to pronounce, but if you've learned anything from this podcast, it's that not knowing how to pronounce something has never stopped us before. So thanks a lot, Ilir. As Australians, we are pretty much obliged to call you Shanders. So you can figure that one out, Shanders. Zachary Stud. Zachary, you're a stud. Not like a horse, but like a plank of wood behind a wall. Reliable and great at supporting things. Like this podcast. Thanks, Woody. And finally, Philippos Amoyaralis. We're going to call you lovely. Cheers, lovely. You can join these signatories and others at patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. That's it for now. See you next time. Talk to Falcon the Gear. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.